I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Welcome, everyone. This is Chad, and on Mission Daily today, we are looking at the future of humanity, of existential risks, and we tackle some big topics in today's interview. And the guest is A.G. Riddle. A.G. is his uh, pen name, I I should say, A.G. Riddle. That was the pen name that Jerry Riddle decided on when he decided to become a self-published author. So if you think about the future of science, of humanity, why are we talking to a self-published author? Well, Jerry is a fascinating, uh, I would call him a scientist, an entrepreneur, and he happens to be an author now. So Jerry has spent over 10 years starting very successful internet companies, and he ended up retiring recently to pursue his true passion, which is writing fiction. So some people, when they get into a new field, they decide to dip their toes in the water. Jerry isn't one of those people. When he went full-time writing fiction, he went full-time on it for about two years, and he invested all of that time in his debut self-published novel, which not surprisingly, took off. He put an incredible amount of research and hard work into this book. He executed on a marketing plan, and he has since gone on to become one of the most popular self-published authors in the world. I highly recommend his books. And in this interview, we're going to talk about some topics that might surprise you. So if you're surprised, if you're excited in a great way, be sure to let me know. If you're not, sorry, can't say I didn't warn you. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. I'm Chad Grills, and I'm joined today by one of my favorite authors, Mr. A.J. Riddle. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Definitely. It's great to have you here. So, Jerry, you have probably one of the most interesting backgrounds of any science fiction writer that's out there right now, uh, at least in my, my mind, my experience, because you have a background in business. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in business and starting internet companies? Yeah, well, you know, I was really raised around small business. My you know, grandfather owned a lumber company that was sort of right next to my house. So, you know, as a kid, I would go over there and like I drove the golf carts around this massive sprawling sawmill, which was such a kick. But I think you observe, you know, you learn so much through osmosis when you're a kid. And, and my dad owned a sign company, which I just loved. I mean, I, I loved the sign business. I loved every aspect of it. I mean, we would you know, some folks would come in and say, you know, we want to sign for our church and these are our ideas. And we would, you know, draw up the, the concepts. And then a week later, we're welding it together in the plant. And a week later, we're putting it up, you know, on, on some, you know, a new restaurant on the facade of it or, you know, 120 feet in the air if it's a big pylon highway sign. So I, I love that. And I grew up around business. And, and so I knew I wanted to start a business and I wanted to do something creative. I mean, that's what I, really loved about my dad's business. And, you know, I went to college in 98 and the internet was changing everything. And, um, you know, just decided this is the future and started a, a company in college. And I did that for, you know, 10 years and, and enjoyed it a lot, but, but always felt that, you know, that maybe there was something different for me or something that I was better at doing. And I guess it's debatable, but writing is, is what I uh, turned to. So in that time in business, were there any big lessons you took away? I, I've listened to a couple of interviews you've done where it sounds like there were, 
were definitely some lessons, but are there any ones that you've carried with you today that you reflect on just again and again? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I learned from business is to, I mean, I think it's pretty well known now, but you know, in, in the early two thousands, iterating, fail fast, learn from your mistakes. And for me personally, I think that sort of figuring out my strengths and weaknesses. And I think the first 10 years of your professional life, I think should be about self-discovery, you know, and that if you're willing to be honest with yourself about what your strengths and weaknesses are, I think that's the wind at your back. I mean, you are able to kind of zero in on what you ought to be doing, what you can do best. And, and what I've decided from my career is that, you know, I love the creative process of, de- you know, developing a, a beta product and product development process, but running the business is something I just didn't enjoy and just didn't have any interest in doing it. I mean, we would launch a, a company and a product. And after that, I was just like, you know, why am I here? And I, I would just get interested in the next idea and the next idea. And, and I think that's not good. I mean, that's not what you want. I mean, follow through and execution becomes really important. And you see the most successful businesses are the ones that create a great product, but then continue to iterate and continue to go. But for me, it was lack of interest after that. And I thought, you know, I reflect and I was like, you know, what business can I get in where this is okay? And writing books is sort of that business. I mean, you research something, you, you do as well as you can on the product and then you put it out, but then you get to go and move on and live another day. And, and that, that's what appealed to me really about, I think I've been a lifelong reader, but that's what I love about writing. I love it. So take me to March 27th, 2013. That's the day you hit publish on your first self-published book. And what was going through your mind when you hit publish and what was the uh, aftermath? Well, I mean, I was pretty nervous. I mean, this is a book that I took two and a half years to write sort of in isolation. You know, I read books on writing and my mom, who was a a retired eighth grade English teacher did the edits for the book. I did the cover myself. My wife read it and I, you know, I'm still proud of that book. I mean, that was the best book I could write at that time. And, and that's, that's kind of how I felt. I felt, you know, I'd done the best I could and I, you know, couldn't make that product any better. It was time to put it in the market and see if there really was an audience for my work. And I thought if there was, you know, I'd keep writing if there wasn't you just go back to the drawing board and say, okay, that wasn't it. What's, what's next. And in an interview before you said that when you're beginning to write a new book, you start with a question that's most interesting to you. That's been maybe nagging at you for a while, or maybe a big question, like an existential risk that you feel is uh, terrifying. What question did you have in your mind for the origin mysteries that, that trilogy and your first book, the Atlantis gene? Well, you know, for me, it was this scientific mystery, and it, it looks something like this. If you, if you go back 200,000 years and you look at the human family tree, there's other hominids on the planet. You know, you've got some really long-lived human species that have just been around. You know, the, at this point, Neanderthals have been on the planet for 300,000 years. You know, Homo erectus you know, I forget the timeline, but I, they're still around. There's a couple more, you know, there's one that were very small humans off the coast of Java. And, and so what you see around the world is a bunch of different human species. And if you fast forward to today, there are no more. And, you know, that to me is a real scientific mystery. I mean, why did all these other species die out while we lived? And I think within that, there has to be something different about us. There's something about the human race that made us 
propagate around the world and conquer this planet like no species ever has before. And so, you know, I think the scientific curiosity about that was what makes us human and what makes us so different from these species that, you know, are 99.9 something percent similar to us. They just didn't have this one little thing. And what is it, you know, that, that made us thrive? And so you bring up a great number there that I always like to cite, which is 99.9%. It's easy to think that every species that is around now is going to keep going, but 99.9% of all species that have ever lived have gone extinct. And on average, I think it's something like one a day goes extinct in the, in the history of, of the earth. So extinction is this very real and ever-present phenomena. How do you think as humans, we're going to start putting that at the forefront of our decision-making processes and start to think, you know, how do we escape that? That is the question of our time, I think. I mean, as you say, extinction is the norm. You know, survival is what is the, the exception and it's so rare. And, you know, if you look at the threats, so I think, I think humanity is here to stay. We have proved ourselves to be, you know, a very resourceful species. You know, if nothing else, and if you put the morality of all the things we've done aside, we were survivors. And, um, you know, going back to the Neanderthals, I mean, they had been in Europe for half a million years and we show up on the scene and they're gone within a few thousand years. And so there's something that, that we had that was some sort of survival advantage that was incredibly more, far advanced from them. But I think that, you know, if you, if you ask me, I think the biggest risk is biological, you know, some sort of pandemic or some sort of a mutation that gives some subgroup of humans some huge advantage that they decide the rest of us they don't want to have around. But a pandemic, I mean, if you look at the world today, we're more connected than we ever have been before. There's more people traveling internationally in developing countries. You've got, you know, the amount of biomass in such cramped quarters. You've got people living in houses with chickens and pigs, and you've got cauldron from which some some sort of pathogen can can readily develop. So I think that's a risk. And just to add real, really quickly too, things like the Black Plague, not many people are familiar with that, but you know, everything when that struck, everything was going along in Europe, everything was great. There were there was almost flourishing going on and then all of a sudden the Black Plague comes along and one out of three people are dead, uh, you know, almost overnight. So this is something that is uh just because it hasn't happened recently doesn't mean that it can't happen in the future. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, and this is fairly recent history, you know, the, the sort of perception is that the population of the human race has gone up at a you know, logarithmic or, you know, pretty mathematical progression, but it's, it's not really that way. I mean, it looks a little bit more like the stock market where there's, you know, these spikes where it goes up and then it, it recedes and then explodes higher again. You know, so I think the, you know, pandemics are a huge threat. And the fact that we don't have, we have some, you know, obviously the America's CDC collaborates with a lot of other organizations, but there needs to be some sort of United Nations for pandemic containment. And it's, it's sort of crazy that we're not doing that and spending a lot of money to do it because it is a huge threat to the, and the, you know, the U.S. hospital systems in the face of, of even something like the Spanish flu that happened in the last century, I mean, they're just not set up to deal with the sort of magnitude of that, of a similar event. You know, my latest book, Winter World, is about a new ice age. And, you know, what was interesting for me about that is if you put 
the cause of climate change aside, I think everyone would agree that, that there are changes going on on the planet. And so instead of doing like a, a water world uh, type novel, I did a winter world novel that... Which is far more like probable. Let's just, you know, reflect. I think humanity's been through something like, what, nine ice ages in our past? Something like that. So... Well, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the the great thing about writing Winter World is that you've got you know, all these ice core samples and all this research that's been done. I mean, the, the last ice age was only 10,000 years ago. So from a geological time scale, it's fairly recent. And, you know, the at that time, the human race was just a bunch of tribes scattered across the planet. And certainly our population numbers got hit, but we survived that one. But, but things are a lot different now, you know, a new ice age. The people in cities are, are just not set up for something like that. And, and so that was kind of fun to write. But if you ask me, I mean, I think a, a lot of the themes of my books are, you know, how we deal with technology and the, the idea that technology is not always a positive. I mean, if, if it makes money, that doesn't mean it's good for society. If it, if it speeds up life, it's not necessarily good. And so I have real concerns about artificial intelligence and robotics and and the potential to make the quality of life go down. I mean, everyone thinks it will go up, but, but I tend to think that humans need to work or they need to labor at something to be truly happy and they need to have something that they're proud of and developing their own skills is, uh, you know, something worth pursuing. And I think this brings us to an interesting point, which is expanding our definition of what technology is. So if we define technology as doing more with less, we can start to see cultural things and habits and behaviors through the lens of technology, maybe. So are there any cultural technologies or maybe modes of human cooperation that you're especially bullish on? Are you bullish maybe on cryptography to help solve some of our collaboration challenges? What do you see coming down the pike that is, uh, that is promising? Well, you know, I, um, I think one of the, the most interesting and positive things, if you ask me, is the fact that the you know, I think one of the magical things about story is that you can see the world through someone else's eyes. And there's something very powerful about that. I mean, you don't, you know, you can talk to people and you can see the documentaries about what people around the world go through. But, you know, in reading a book, you you have this immersion that is very different and is very impactful, I think. And so I think, you know, one of the things that technology has done is it's opened the world up. It's you know, if you look at the Middle East, now these people are seeing how people in the West live and how women live. And I think it's it's caused a lot of turmoil in terms of, you know, revolution and conflict between the people who control the government and society now. And But I also think it's shown people what life can be like on Earth and what what the possibilities are. So I think, you know, the expression of the human spirit and sort of getting to know people around the world and what their life is like, I think is to me the most powerful thing. You can take a picture and you can take a video and you can write a story and you can put it online. I mean, someone in Saudi Arabia today can write a story about what it's like to be a woman in Riyadh and they can publish it on Kindle Direct Publishing. And, you know, people can read it around the world. And I think that's never been possible before. And I think uh, it's, it's very powerful. So is maybe media that can't be censored something that is a positive solution to some of our challenges? Because you know we've recently witnessed things like the Saudi Arabian journalist that was killed and other horrible things like that. You know, are you bullish on the future of media maybe to help solve some of these problems? Definitely. I mean, I think 
you know, media is a double-edged sword, right? I mean, the, um, I think that we would agree that there's a ton of stuff that shouldn't be out there that, that is, I mean, these kids eating Tide Pods and all this foolishness. But I also think on balance, it's such a powerful thing because the younger generation, the, the attention spans are shrinking, but, uh, you know, photos and videos are so powerful and they, you know, have the, the potential to convey so much. And I think also the fact that everyone, I think, having more humans in the practice of creating this, there's something incredibly positive, whether they're creating a video or a social media post or something like that and sharing it with the world, I think is, um, you know, there's a dark side of it, but I think it could be very healthy. So with some of the, your other books that you've written, I know departure was, uh, yeah, a bit of a departure from your other themes. What was the question there with, with that book that led you or was kind of nagging at you and caused you to write it? Well, you know, departure, you know, at its core is about how does the world end? And, you know, in departure, you have this plane that takes off in New York in the present day and it crash lands in the future. And it's a future in which uh, the human race is very small and they have gone through these terrible, terrible events. And, you know, what I think is interesting about departure is you have a group of billionaires who were well-intentioned, who created some things that they thought would revolutionize the world and they thought were the future and they were, but there was a dark side of those technological creations. And so now, you know, the thing that attracted me to the novel is that you've got this group of Titans that are the, about the only people left and they have to bring to their time period, the people from their past that can help, you know, change things in the past and, and, put humanity on a new course. And a lot of that is about their relationships and what they wish they would have done in the past. So with a lot of these books, you know, I've heard you mention with your most recent series that you were struggling through some real challenges in your life. And when you're writing a book and you mentioned that it was helpful to process a lot of the things that were going on, do you view books as, and the writing process as something that's healing? Do you view them as something that you know, that creative process is something more people should do to help heal themselves. What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, writing a book is an incredible self-discovery tool. And I also think, as you said, it can be therapeutic. I mean, in the case of Winter World, I had uh, written about half the book and my mom got very sick and she came to live with us. She had this rare lung disease. And, um, you know, she ended up getting a double lung transplant at Duke and, you know, it just, you know, she experienced a bunch of complications and, and passed away about five weeks after. And, you know, something like that is something sort of like the ice age in winter world. No one expected it. And it, it came out of nowhere. And it's something you just are overwhelmed by. I mean, you just can't deal with it. And unlike, you know, you know in my life, I, there was nothing I could do. You know, felt very helpless. There was no way I could help her. And the, you know, the sort of like in winter world, the sun you know was going out. It was a very dark period, but, but, you know, you see in the books, you see characters who are like you are, and you see them overcome these incredible challenges. And I think that's what, uh, it's, it's just so cathartic. I mean, you, you invest in the characters and you see them struggle and you see them come out the other side. And, you know, I certainly took some inspiration from it. And it was very therapeutic for me to write it. And I think that's what good books are about. I mean, if you ask me, it, you know, a good book is one that leaves the reader better than they were before. And it could be that 
Uh, it's intellectually nourishing. You know, you learn something from the book, but I also think there's a lot of emotional nourishing that, that happens in books. And, you know, we're inspired to tackle the challenges in our own lives. We, you know, we get some of the things that maybe we don't get enough of in life that we desire, whether it be adventure or, you know, emotional fulfillment, uh, romantic fulfillment. So, so I would say, yeah, writing the book helped me a lot. And you could get adventure too without, you know, adventure in the real world is awesome. It's great. I advocate it, but you can uh, increase the chance you're going to stay in the gene pool when you uh, get adventure through your books, which is uh, always nice. Okay. Let's talk about the antagonist in winter world a little bit, because I'm very fascinated by this. And before we talk about it, I just want to bring up two things here. So Dr. Alan Boss of the Carnegie Institute of Science speculates that there could be 100 billion Earth-like planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone. And another piece of research here, scientists from the University of Edinburgh ran a computer simulation where they constructed a synthetic galaxy. And from this, they concluded that at least 361 intelligent civilizations have emerged in the Milky Way since its creation. As many as 38,000 may have formed. So who is the antagonist in Winter World? So some spoilers coming here, but you know, in Winter World, the Earth is freezing and a consortium of scientists determined that the planet's going to be uninhabitable uh, in a matter of years. And they say, you know, they send probes out into space to try to take readings to figure out why solar output is falling. And so they discover these artifacts sort of floating through space and, and no one knows, no one's seen them before and no one knows what they are. And so the idea is that are these here to help us or are they causing it or are they relics left over from some ancient civilization. And so in the course of investigating these artifacts, they discovered that they were created by this alien race that basically only has one desire and that's energy. They're a species that exists in the cloud, I guess you could say, you know, they're a post singularity civilization and they basically are scouring the galaxy, acquiring energy to, you know, power their species. And so what was really interesting for me to write Winter World is that you know, this is an alien invasion story where you don't have little green men, you don't have you know these space battles. It's really something that, that I fear more, which is a species that has no interest in us at all. They see us as just ants on some ant hill that are a nuisance in the way to deal with. And they, you know, in Winter World, the miscalculation that they make is that that humanity can't fight back. And so in, in the course of Winter World, the scientists go and get this guy, James Sinclair, who's in prison, who turns out to be the only guy that could have could have turned it around. And the fact that he was in prison and out of play and not creating and innovating in the world is kind of the only thing that saved the human race. It's the idea that someone said, hey, you know, what you created is uh, is not okay with us. And so I think, you know, what was appealing to me about Winter World was not only this question about what would the world be like in an ice age, but what if first contact is nothing like we think? And what if what we have, our sun, our you know natural resource, is the most appealing thing in our solar system to an alien? I mean, that would we'd be in big trouble. All right. So t- two questions I want to jump into. The first is a quote from you, which is the most brilliant minds on the planet are controversial characters. So we know that they're controversial, but oftentimes we think that people in prison are just people who have done something wrong. They should be there. Can you tell me a little bit about that quote and maybe why we should be a bit more forgiving with some people who are quirky and different and out there? Well, yeah. I mean, if you 
if you think about it, the people that have pushed society forward are the ones who've pushed the boundaries. I mean, they've pushed the technological limits and they're at their heart risk takers. I mean, even if they're scientists who you consider to be risk averse within their world of science, there are people that think outside the box and push the boundaries. And, you know, if you look at historically the people who have made these incredible discoveries, whether it's Darwin or Galileo and, you know, these people were very controversial in their own time. And, um, and those are the only ones that we remember and that we know too, because there's no telling how many of these people came before where they didn't even get a chance before they were burned at the stake to get their ideas out. So Correct. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, there's this natural tendency for us as a species to to want the status quo to continue. You know, we I think love new things to a certain extent, but but change is something that that scares us, especially if it's something so radical. And if it's a change that you don't know how it's going to impact your life, you'd rather not deal with it. I mean, that's, that's what happened with James Sinclair. He created something that would have you know, changed life on earth and people didn't really know what that life would be like. And they said, you know, we got to get this guy had uh, a circulation. I think the great thing about, you know, where we are as a species is that, you know, some of the smartest people turn out not to be criminals. I mean, they turn out to be, to have a, a very good moral code. And that, that's something that I worry about as well as the moral fabric of the human race. I mean, if that goes, we could be in real trouble. And the probability that it could go too is uh, it's a real threat because right now, a lot of the morality that we have is aided by technologies and systems. And many of these systems that we've, we have, we've inherited it's really, really hard to appropriately value inherited technology, wealth, anything like that. How do you think as a species, we can start to value all the sacrifices that came before and all the technology that we have? How can we do that better? Well, I think, uh, you know, in school, we learn history, but I often think that we focus on the wrong things. I mean, you spend however long learning about the war of 1812, but it, it's a very small part of how we got here and what, what life is like today. I and mean, I think it's a little more interesting to study how the Model T changed you know, life in America and how electricity, the advent of electricity changed life. And, and to think about technology and what life was like before technology and after. And I also think, you know, societal norms are evolving. I mean, you know, even in our house, we, we have time where we're just like, you know, no cell phones, no computers, and we have to, to try to control it because technology can certainly interfere with your life. It, it can enhance it, but I think it's also a, it's something that you have to be very disciplined. And, you know, it's, sometimes it's a lot more interesting what's going on, on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube than what's going on in your real life, but that doesn't mean you should be looking at it all the time. Sure. Let's get back to the protagonist of Winter World here for a moment and what some of the implications of, uh, of that and the, the plot there could be. What do you think about study research and things like that? In my mind, I'll tip my hand here. I think things like that should be illegal. I think that uh, I'm a big fan of the dark forest problem. I think we should be very, very carefully as we start to uh, mature and um, become a multiplanetary species. What do you view about those things? And are we taking a huge risk by wanting to be the ones that make first contact and broadcasting our location and things like that? Well, I think it's sort of, as you said previously, statistically, it's unlikely that we're alone. You know, it's, it's far more likely that there's something else out there. You know, the thing I think about is the thing I worry about 
you know, is a species that reached its high watermark and then went extinct and left, left over something, some technology that was either defensive or, you know, some explorer technology that could run across us and get the wrong idea. You know, as I look out at the future and think about how artificial intelligence and robotics are going to transform the planet, I, I start thinking about major public works projects. I mean, I would, I would love to see some global biodefense. Obviously, I think if we could a colony on the moon and space tourism are great and you know these things could generate a lot of money but but i think getting out into the solar system and i don't think we should be broadcasting at all i think we should be watching and i think i think building bigger telescopes and more advanced telescopes are important and it's hard to know if we would even be able to handle if if they're sufficiently advanced to come to our solar system from another one they probably don't have a chance in that fight and you know it's I think it, it sort of reveals our species as, uh, you know, warlike and maybe tending to fear. But, but I think you're better off if you're ready to fight, even if you don't have to. Because if you, if you do and you're not ready, it's curtains and it's lights out. And one of the things that I like bringing up and pointing out, so from my time in the military, the biggest eye-opening thing was the people who have trained to fight the most are typically the ones that want to fight the least. They, they don't want to actually fight, but they're paranoid enough to prepare. I think a lot of people worry that that type of paranoia is going to be a slippery slope where normal life is going to be impossible and life is just going to be horrible if we really get proactive about getting ready for existential threats. Do you worry that we would lose our ability to play if we if we really started to fight back against existential threats? Or do you think that a vibrant culture and play are still possible while simultaneously preparing for the worst? I think so. And the reason, you know, I think <laughs> this sort of defense is very different than what the Roman legions experienced. I mean, theirs was principally hand-to-hand combat, and it was up close in person. You know, what we're talking about here is probably, you know, automated defense platforms that orbit the planet and are and are ready, and it's an early warning system that's probably out, you know, Kuiper Belt or somewhere past Neptune. I mean, this war would look more like a video game than any war that's ever happened on the planet. And I don't think, I, you know, I tend to think that wouldn't affect the psyche. And I mean, you're right, it's as a species, I think we should really think about these things because war certainly changes people. And, but I think, you know, it would certainly also give people jobs. And it's, it's a slippery slope in a sense of who controls it, right? I mean, in the 80s, the Star Wars project was really about this fear that whoever controls space has the high ground in any war and they would, would be undefeatable. And that's why, you know, that's what the race to the moon and the race to put all these satellites up there was about. And I think that's true to some extent. So when you're thinking about these things and uh, when you're not in deep thought mode, what else are you doing out in the real world? What are you doing uh, with your family? What are you doing for fun when you put some of this stuff aside? <laughs> well, um, gosh, you know, all kinds of stuff. My wife and I have a two-year-old daughter. She's about two and a half, and she is wide open. I mean, it feels like we got like three or four kids. Um, and, and so we're trying to keep up with her. You know, she's still in ballet and gymnastics. And um, we're building a new house here in Raleigh, which been planning for a couple of years and it's been like one of the novels where I've like 
drawn up plans and revised them and gone through so many edits and driven everybody crazy about it. But um, <laughs> we just started construction today, actually. But, you know, doing that and you know, I'm working a lot. I'm enjoying the work again and, you know, going to do it as long as I think I'm pretty good and, and I'm enjoying it. But um, that's about it. So you're obviously a big reader. You're an awesome writer. What are you watching, if anything, on in terms of long form content? Because you mentioned earlier that attention spans are dropping. And I agree with you in, in some regards they are. But in other regards, you have people who are, you know, binge watching things that are really sophisticated dramas that couldn't have found an audience years ago. Is there anything you're watching there? And what do you think about that space? Well, you know, I, I'm, I have sort of an eclectic taste, but I've been watching Endeavor. It's a British show. I guess it's the prequel to Inspector Morse, but it takes place. It's set in Oxford in the 60s. And you know, there's something about the show that has this kind of nostalgic effect. You know, this younger protagonist who's a detective and he has no CSI. He's got no cell phone. He's got, you know, and it's, it's really about him reading the people and being really observant about the clues and, and life was a lot slower then. So I've been watching that and I've been in kind of a drought to find something, but I, I agree with you. I mean, the, the sort of explosion of video content is in, they have the ability to produce content at a lower cost and then hyper target it to these small audiences they couldn't before. So as before we had this, you know, really broad-based, a bunch of broad-based shows that some people were really happy with, but the majority of the audience were just kind of happy with and would watch it because it was on. And I think now we're getting, we're getting to more shows that smaller audiences are thrilled about. I've been watching the Orville, you know, Seth MacFarlane's new space adventure show on Fox, and uh, it's pretty funny. And I thought the first season was better than the second, but I'm, you know, I'm enjoying that. And, um, well, that's about it. You know, I read more than I watch TV. I'll say that. So speaking of reading, what are, what's the best fiction and then what's the best nonfiction book you've read in the last year? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, the fiction is sort of a toss up. I mean, uh, Blake Crouch's book, Dark Matter, I thought was really good. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. And then Will McIntosh, who's you know a less known author, who's a Hugo Award winner, uh, has this book called Love Minus 80. That I thought was really interesting. The nonfiction side, I don't. I would have to go back and look. I actually read some novels or some books about novel writing. I think it was called Hit Lit. That I thought was really interesting. It um, talked about how books become bestsellers, and I probably should have read that before I started writing books. But <laughs> I had some interesting points. So, in an interview I listened to before this, you mentioned that you read somewhere around fifty different books on writing and that craft. Is that level of preparation for an endeavor? Have you always done that or when did you pick that up? Well, I think it, it probably came from the internet days because we would go into a startup in a space. We created a personal health record, for example. And, and I knew that being in my twenties and had never been to the doctor a lot, I knew very little about healthcare. So I was, you know, used to researching things a lot and sort of over-preparing and going into writing. I knew I had a lot to learn. And I needed those books. And my style of learning is, is very introverted. I mean, I like to just go off, self-teach, and then come back and try to do it and start over again. All right. So 
we're almost back to where we started the interview. And I want to ask one more question there to kind of get back to the beginning of it, which is, you don't have to answer this too, by the way, but what are your favorite theories or speculations about how we made the jump roughly 70,000 years ago from you know, a couple thousand members of the human race to completely conquering the planet, winning against horrible diseases and nature and everything like that. What are your favorite theories? Well, you know, I tend to think that it was some method of communication. So um, whether it was, you know, a tribe that started eating more fish and that changed something in their brain and they were able to communicate and learn from the past. I mean, I think that's perhaps one of the defining features of our species. I mean, the the Neanderthals, they have cave paintings, they have, you know, figurative art, and Homo erectus did too, but but nothing on our scale. I mean, when we show up on the scene, we're doing paintings that do show a progression of a story and and kind of tell something to future generations. I think that's, that's what really put us ahead was the fact that we could, to a younger generation, have traditions that weren't just, you know, oral traditions passed down. We could, you know, really say, okay, this is what you need. This big lion, stay away from that. That's not good. Or it was, you know, the ability to organize and, you know, with language to hunt more efficiently or to say, hey, we need to leave this area. We've got a predator coming in. So I tend to think that it was something with communication that one tribe made the leap and then it just spread out to everyone else. And so for a final thought, I would love it if you could maybe leave our audience with your recommendation or maybe a call to action for anyone out there who is aware of existential threats and who decides, I want to do something about them. What would you advocate that they do or what are your thoughts there? Well, I would, you know, I think what you said is, is right. If they start to think about in their everyday life, what can be done? Because I don't think, you know, this is going to be a top down fix. I think it's, it's more like a sea change where people say, you know, if they're working at the state health department, they start to say, you know, we, what we really need to do is collaborate more, you know, with the CDC and our local health departments and internationally. And if they are bringing up these topics again, 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 maybe it starts to become an issue. And I think, you know, with people voting and going to the the voter box and saying, look, I'm going to favor politicians who think more long-term, who think about these big issues that threaten us and not just the things that are right in front of us today and that, that are pain points. And, you know, there, there has to be a balance between the two. I don't think you can just be head in the clouds and, you know, we're going to stop social programs because we want to fund space defense. You know, I don't, wouldn't advocate anything like that, but some sort of balanced approach. And again, I think we're, we're on the cusp in the next, I don't know, 20 to 40 years of seeing a radical change in the global economy in which we're going to have a lot of people that don't have anything to do. They will have minds that have no place. Computers or robotics will have eliminated, you know, a lot of their work. And, and I think these major public works projects internationally could be, could be the answer. I love it. Jerry, thanks so much for being generous with your time. And for everybody listening, we'll see you next time. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, 
who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.